Well, good morning again to all of you. Um, I failed earlier to introduce myself. My name's Evan Saxton, and I'm the college minister here at Southside. <clears throat> and you know, I'm, I'm always grateful and humbled at the opportunity to share when, when all of us get together. And this time of year is when you can most expect to hear from me up here preaching. It's, it's the beginning of the college fall semester, and it's an important time to welcome new students and remind the whole family here of our love for and commitment to the people on campus. And it's an important time to reflect together on how God is at work, even when we're preoccupied with many things. And it's also an important time to remember the transformative power of the gospel, how it's transformed us and how it will transform us. And I'm just so thankful for the way that Jesus has changed my life since the first time I showed up here over 16 years ago. And I know that so many other former campus ministry students here can certainly say the same. You know, it's not only changed so many of the things that I do or I don't do, it's, it's changed the way that I think about so many things, the way that I understand life, the world, who God is, and who I am. And today, my mind has been more specifically on the power the gospel has to change our work, how it changes the work that we do and the way that we think about work. And with the coming of a new school year, you know, so many of us are going back to a certain kind of work or a certain mode of work, and many of us are starting new work as well. And I just want to say that beginnings are important. Beginnings are important. The way we begin things can have so much impact on the habits that we go on to form and the people that we go on to become. And so I find it important this morning to reflect on a few truths together about God's work. And I'm just going to put them up here right now for you. Here are the points that I want for us to spend some time thinking about this morning. God chooses to work through people. God will accomplish what he wills. And God will make all things new. And so this morning we're going we're gonna to look at how each of these truths is evident in the story of Jesus. And we'll consider how these truths have shaped other people's stories. And then we'll consider some principles that just may reshape the stories of our work if we choose to embrace these principles. And we might even do all that in under 30 minutes. And so... Here's, here's kind of my thought um, behind where, where I'm coming from today. As the story of Christ shapes the story of our lives, it will also shape the story of our work. The gospel's transformative power, it transforms everything, including our work. So we're going to think specifically about how it changes our work this morning. And so kind of jumping into that first thought, God chooses to work through people. Where I'm coming from with this, <clears throat> a lot of my, my thinking for what I've prepared this morning is inspired by two books. One by Tish Harrison Warren, it's called Prayer in the Night, and another by Timothy Keller called Every Good Endeavor. And in Tish Harrison Warren's book, Prayer in the Night, there's one chapter in particular where she talks about praying over those who work. And she talks about how we tend to have a wrong idea of what she calls competitive agency. And it's it's basically the idea that our work and God's work are separate from each other. 
we do our best and God does the rest, is, is how we might often think about the dynamic at, at play between our work and God's work. <clears throat> I, I pretty recently heard a faith leader kind of share to their faith community uh, a quote. I hadn't heard this before, but it was shared as something that it seemed like people had heard it before and knew it. He said, pray like it's all up to God, serve like it's all up to you. And you know, if you've heard that before, if you find that to be helpful, don't let me ruin it for you. But I'd, I would say, I, I find that saying to be fine to the extent that it encourages us to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We serve with all that we have. But I would also say, maybe it's a little problematic in the way that it promotes this dualistic thinking where our work and God's work are separate from each other. There's, there's a line from the Book of Common Prayer from the prayer known as Compline. It's a nighttime prayer. And it says, Watch over those both day and night who work while others sleep and grant that we may never forget that our common life depends on each other's toil through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I share that because I I think it shows us there's more at work in, in our work, the way that we de- depend on each other and the way that God might be behind that in ways that we don't tend to think about. Martin Luther King Jr., kind of talking about a similar thing, once, once talked about how we get up in the morning. We, he talked about using a sponge, which I don't use sponges very often, but go with me here. He talked about using a sponge made from one person in one part of the world and then using a towel made by someone else in some other part of the world, and then drinking a beverage, coffee, tea, cocoa, from someone in another part of the world. And he said, we do not finish breakfast without being dependent on more than half the world. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that God structures our shared lives in such a way that we tend to be dependent on each other on levels far beyond what we tend to realize. And I'd even argue that we often grossly underestimate God's hand in this, God being at work through our work. And as Christians, this is something that we know as common grace. It's God's goodness being extended to all people, even those who don't know him or love him. But there's, there's a higher level. God's up to even more through those who do know him and love him, and he always has been. Going all the way back to the earliest fathers of Israel, God promised to multiply them and bless the world through them. It's always through people that God intended to bless the whole world. And so I'd I'd invite you to consider the gospel event of Jesus' incarnation as an example of how God works through people. And you could argue that the incarnation actually shows how God felt he had to come here and get stuff done himself. But I would say it's not that simple. I would say God is so committed to working through people that the way he saw fit to go about defeating sin and death for all time was by taking on flesh and becoming human himself. And he came near to his people. He grafted himself into the very ancestral lines of his people. He taught them. He trained them, and then he sent them out. He sent people out to proclaim his good news. And we can see this at work in the life of Peter, I think. 
when we're introduced to Peter in the Gospels, he's a fisherman. Um, but he has a life-changing encounter with Jesus where Peter has had an unsuccessful night of fishing and Jesus boards onto Peter's boat, gives Peter one little tip, throw the nets on this side. And then all of a sudden, Peter has so many fish in his nets that his boat is coming down. His very livelihood, the, the vessel from which he earns his living is coming down. It's sinking because of all these fish. And he looks up. And I think in that moment, Peter realizes God in flesh stands before him. And he says, leave me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus' reply is, fear not. Now you will become fishers of men. And it says that Peter and his partners, James and John, they left everything and they went to follow Jesus. So he goes from fisherman to fisher of men by meeting God in flesh. His life has changed. His work is changed. And later, after Peter has spent some time following Jesus, we see in Matthew 16 a really significant moment where Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this is a monumental moment just for those words to actually be spoken. And Jesus immediately blesses Peter, and he tells Peter that the church is going to be built on the foundation of this truth, that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus tells Peter, I will give you, listen to this, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so know that Jesus came to save humanity, to forgive us of our sins. Jesus came because he is the key to our salvation. But even as Jesus is the key, he also gives the keys of his kingdom into the hands of people. He entrusts people with the work of his kingdom. And we see from then on, Peter went on to become one of the fathers of the early church. And he displayed a clear understanding that the work he was doing was also God's work. His work and God's work were cooperative. He understood that he and God were both at work together. And as, as Barrett's been walking us through the book of Acts, we've seen time and time again how Peter connects his work to the power of Jesus' name, to the teaching of the Lord, and to the inspiration of the Spirit. He would even later go on to teach about how we are partakers in the divine nature, is how he puts it in Second Peter chapter 1. Paul also writes in Colossians 1, he talks about this idea, this idea of Christ in us, the hope of glory, being partakers in the divine nature. He talks about it as a rich and glorious mystery. And I just want to point out that it's a mysterious thing, this idea of God's work and our work being deeply connected. And I think we can go too far in trying to understand it and explain it to the point where we rob it of its glorious riches. We lose sense of the mystery of it, and we lose sense of just how connected our work and God's work really are. And so the principle I'd like to submit to you that might change the story of our work if we embrace it is that our work is a participation in the very life of God. In this book that I mentioned earlier, Prayer in the Night, um, Warren writes, the Christian understanding of agency is that all good work is a participation in the very life of God. It is our act of cooperation with the sustainer of the universe. 
And then in the other book I mentioned, Tim, Tim Keller's Every Good Endeavor, there's a very similar thought. Every Christian should be able to identify with conviction and satisfaction the ways in which his or her work participates with God in his creativity and cultivation. <clears throat> and now, I can't, I can't tell you how this looks in your work, in your daily work, but if you haven't happened to think about it in this way before, about our work and God's work being cooperative and connected, our work being a participation in God's life, if you haven't thought about it that way before, I would say the gospel of Jesus gives me reason to believe that exciting new frontiers of fulfillment await you in your work. And so even before you go back to your regular work this week, I encourage you to spend even a few moments thinking about this. What work do I know God to be up to in this world? And how does or how can this work of mine be a part of that work that God is up to? Let's move on to the next thought here, which is that God will accomplish what he wills. Now, I should say that God's commitment to partnering with people, it doesn't compromise his sovereignty. As image bearers of God, people are the crown jewels of creation. We heard it in that passage that Glenn read for from Psalm 8. People are the crown jewels of creation. God sets people apart by giving us dominion over creation, but God is still king. And God is certain to accomplish his purposes but I would say also he has a tendency to surprise and confound the world in the ways that he goes about doing this. Take Jesus, for instance. Son of God, Messiah, Holy One, the one who came to save. He had power beyond imagination at his disposal, but he saved us from sin by laying down his power. And so really we could say here that God will accomplish what he wills and he confounds the way of the world in the process. And this has massive implications about how God does his work and how we ought to do our work in turn. I think we get a great example from the life of Jesus that's mentioned in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the gospel event that illustrates to us how God will accomplish what he wills is Jesus' crucifixion. God willed for us to be forgiven, and he did it through Christ on the cross. And we see the power of this at work, for one example, in, in the life of John. You see, John and his brother James, they were Jesus' disciples, and they had been dubbed Sons of Thunder. And we don't know exactly why they were given this nickname, but maybe we get a glimpse in Luke 9 where some Samaritans refused to welcome Jesus into their village, and John and his brother asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And so Jesus quickly rebukes them. But maybe this shows us a little bit why they were called sons of thunder and not sons of sweetness. 
but clearly at some point things must have changed for John. We, we're, we're given a glimpse, a glimpse in John 19 that's kind of unique. Um, we think of Jesus' crucifixion, and rightly so, as a very lonely event. Jesus was separated from his father in, in unbelievably painful ways, and it seems like he was all by himself. But in John 19, we also see John near the cross, and Jesus' mother, and a couple other Marys, and... And there's this moment where Jesus looks down at his mother Mary and he points over to his disciple John and he says to Mary, woman, this is your son. And he says to John, this is your mother. And, And something powerful happens there and changes there. As John watched his beloved Lord lay down his life, John went from son of thunder to son of Mary. He took her in. And he took care of her, and he went on to become the only gospel author to highlight lines such as this from Jesus. In John 10, verses 14 and 15, um, John shares these words of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. In John 15, verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is our primary paradigm as followers of Christ, to lay down our lives. John also went on to write these words that show how influenced he was by Jesus' selfless ways. He writes in 1 John chapter 3, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And so a principle we can embrace to change the story of our work through the gospel is that our work in Christ starts with laying down our lives. And like I said, this is our primary paradigm as followers of Christ. We see it at work in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so again, we see from Paul this rich, glorious mystery of Christ in us, and it's the crucified Christ. This is what guides us in our actions. Um, speaking about the ways of the world in business, Tim Keller has this to say. It is probably fair to say that the implicit assumptions in the marketplace don't get, this is not as nerdy as it sounds. Hang with me. <clears throat> the implicit assumptions in the marketplace are that making money is the main thing in life, that business is fundamentally about accumulating and wielding power, and that maximizing profit within legal limits is an end in itself. And the reason is that sin runs through the heart of every worker and the culture of every enterprise. The result is polluted rivers, poor service, unjust compensation, entitlement attitudes, dead-end jobs, dehumanizing bureaucracy, backstabbing, and power grabs. 
This is why it is so important for us to be intentional in applying the counter-narrative of the gospel to business. As we bring to our work a mindset of laying down our lives for others, as Christ did, we present a different kind of culture into the working world, and we can trust that God is at work with us, bringing fruit from it. Last point this morning is that God will make all things new. We've seen some different mindsets from Galatians, from Colossians, from the lives of Peter and John, and, and the idea of things being made new comes through in a special way to me in Colossians 3. Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Just a a few lines down, I think Paul gives us a good example of what this might look like to set our, our hearts and our minds on things above. He says in Colossians 3, verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I think if we, if we concern ourselves with being clothed with these things and bringing them into our work, we can begin to experience some of the ways in which God makes things new in our work. And I would say something happens as we embrace this new kind of fashion sense, these new clothes God starts to free us from all different kinds of slavery. Maybe we become a little less hurried. Maybe we become a little less vain. Maybe we become a little more thankful. And as this happens, our work can begin to hold a different place in our lives. It can cease to be about identity. It can cease to be about achievement. And it can start to be about reveling with the Lord and how well he's made us and putting our bodies and minds to good use. It can start to be about delighting in good things. Tish Harrison Warren kind of speaks to this. She says, we work to bring justice to the world, to bring help in crisis, but we also work for beauty, laughter, and levity, for sheer pleasure. We paint, we quilt, cook, act, and perform stand-up. All these kinds of work participate in God's mending of a world unraveled. When we appreciate beautiful things and and bringing beauty into the world and celebrating beauty. God does powerful things. He's mending a world unraveled. That's what he's up to, and he wants us to join him. And the gospel event that illustrates that for us, that God is making things new, is the resurrection. You know, for Christians, fewer words have more power to inspire hope than these. He is risen. Jesus' death, it gives us forgiveness. It frees us from the consequence of sin. But Jesus' resurrection frees us from the power of sin. And Paul speaks to this in Romans 6. He says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. 
In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When we are truly dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, that means we can love selflessly and work joyfully. And we can discover the truest versions of ourselves because we'll no longer believe the lie that we can make better things of ourselves than God already has. I want to share a story with you. Um, I, have to, I have to cheat on this last one. And this, this story doesn't come from Scripture. It's actually fictional. But this is a story that's become deeply meaningful to me. And man, Shane and Dan talked about crying this morning, and I might, I might join in that. I'm going to try not to. <clears throat> so most of you are familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien. He's the British author who's given us some of the best known and loved stories in history, stories like The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings trilogy. And in order to share these stories, Tolkien imagined an entire world that he called Middle-earth. And he brought this world to life through the pages of the books that he wrote. He created thousands of years of history for many different groups of Middle-earth's inhabitants. He created languages prophecies, songs, poems, and literature from this world. And he told stories with hosts of main characters and complexly woven plot lines. To Tolkien, it wasn't possible to do it any other way, and it was a monumental task. And in the process of developing all these pieces, he became very overwhelmed with trying to bring them all together. In fact, he was deeply concerned that he wouldn't be able to finish that he would die first. He was in his 50s. His creative juices were jamming up, and the daunting inevitability of World War II, it was coming into its own. There was doom all around, it felt like. So one day, in what ended up being a deeply therapeutic exercise, Tolkien wrote a different story. It's called Leaf by Niggle. Niggle was a character designed to reflect Tolkien in some ways, and maybe he reflects some of us, too. You see, the Oxford English Dictionary definition of the word niggle is to work in a fiddling or ineffective way, to spend time unnecessarily on petty details. Niggle was a painter, and he seems to have had a specialty for painting leaves. He's described as the type of painter who can spend a long time working on the finest details of a single leaf. But his problem is that he longs to paint a particular tree that he's envisioned, along with an entire countryside where the tree sits, an entire forest in the distance, and even further beyond that, some snow-tipped mountains. He works on painting any chance he gets, but he rarely makes much progress And he slows himself down even further by often going back to rework parts he's already done. It becomes his fixation. Because he will be picked up sometime soon. He doesn't know exactly when for a long journey that he doesn't want to make, but he can't get out of it. And the journey, of course, is meant to represent his death. Another one of Nichols' great challenges is that he has a kind heart, at least to the extent that he can rarely bring himself to tell people no when they ask things of him. So there are always things pulling him in different directions. He's not able to work on what he wants to. And this is especially challenging for him with his neighbor, who has a bad leg, and his neighbor asks for Niggles' help on many things. 
And so one day, one particularly cold and rainy day, Niggles' neighbor, his name's Parrish, comes and asks for Niggles' help. He says, my wife is sick. Will you please go get a doctor for us? I can't go. And so after a particularly long and wet bike ride, Niggle gets very sick. Shortly after, he's picked up to go on his journey, and he's devastated not to have finished his painting. And part of his canvas is found with a single leaf, and that it's put on display in a town museum. Few people see it. Fewer people appreciate it. So he's taken off on his journey, and he's given time. He's allowed to work single-mindedly without distraction on some simple tasks, and he doesn't delight in it, but he begins to take satisfaction in the work that he's doing. He becomes competent. He becomes efficient and productive in ways that he never had been. And then he's taken to a countryside, and he's dropped off with a bike. He's riding through the countryside. Here we go. He's going over the hills, and he falls off his bike, and he looks up, and there is his tree. It's there. It's everything that he imagined, and then some. He's able to take it all in. He's able to explore it and prove it. He plants a garden around it, and it ends up being a place that's helpful to many others on their journeys. I don't know why this is so beautiful to me, but it is. I, I'm indebted to Tim Keller for introducing me to this story in his book, Every Good Endeavor. And he has this to say after he shares the story. Well, here's our gospel principle. We will be redeemed and so will our work. This is a beautiful thought to me. Whatever your work, you need to know this. There really is a tree. Whatever you are seeking in your work, the city of justice and peace, the world of brilliance and beauty, the story, the order, the healing, it is there. There we go. There is a God. There is a future healed world that he will bring about, and your work is showing it in part to others. Your work will only partially be successful on your best days in bringing that world about, but inevitably... The whole tree that you seek, the beauty, harmony, justice, comfort, joy, and community will come to fruition. If you know all this, you won't be despondent because you can get only a leaf or two out in this life. You will work with satisfaction and joy. You will not be puffed up by success or devastated by setbacks. That's just such a beautiful thought to me. And and I think... It applies in any work we might find ourselves in. If you work in education, God is bringing a time where we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. If you work in medicine, God's bringing a time when there will be no death. If you work in psychology, God is bringing a time where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, no depression, no anxiety, no narcissism, no mental illnesses. If you work in engineering, God is bringing a new earth with new structures, and everything will be in metric. (laughs) If you work in interior design, I have two words for you. No wallpaper. (laughs) If you work in ministry, we'll all know the Lord. (laughs) I guess we'll have to get real jobs. (laughs) Of course I'm joking. 
work after resurrection won't look like it does now. But these bodies are still going to be good for something. And we don't get to take everything with us. We don't get to take anything with us, including our accomplishments. But maybe God will bring into that life the absolute best of what we've always worked for, what we've always longed for in our work. We get one more glimpse of this. I'm just going to close with this text from Isaiah 65. So you know, Scripture does speak to this as well, not just Tolkien. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. Listen to this. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. He's going to redeem it. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord they and their descendants with them. And so in closing, I just want to encourage you to truly believe that the gospel really does change our lives, every bit of us, including our work. And as you go to work this week, remember, our work is a participation in the life of God. Our work in Christ starts with laying down our lives, and we will be redeemed, and so will our work. Praise the Lord.